gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, now is a great time to become a uh, fully subscribed member of the Dispatch community. Um, um, actually, every day is a great time to do that. Just thought I'd get that out front in case I get too distracted by the time this thing is over. Um, so we are not doing a solo uh, podcast today. Um, because basically, uh, uh, my amenuensis guy Denton hates them so much that, uh, he, he begged and pleaded that we do it as a, uh, an AMA or as people call it, ask me anything. Um, so guy is here. Hello guy. Hello Jonah. Thank you for letting me out of the cage. Uh, I wouldn't say I begged and pleaded. I just politely floated the alternative suggestion. Yeah. So uh, before we continue, let's just sort of get it on the air. Like, I know why I have hangups about the the solo podcast. I totally get my reasons for being self-conscious about it. Uh, why do you hate your employer and the keeper of your uh, your ability to live in this country's solo podcast so much that you're actually willing to give voice to it from behind the bars of your kennel? I was mostly joking. I thought that would come across when I no, said no, no, it. No, no, no. I've, 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 I like you've, you, you've laughed hard when various interns or Adam has made reference to how much you hate the solo podcast. You can't weasel out of it now. Have various um, interns have made reference to it? I didn't know that. I believe it's been in your presence. Let's just put it. This is not the first data point um, in in the fact that you cannot stand it. So, like, what what is your objection? And, and note. For the most part, at least the people who show up in the comments, they side with me, um, or they, they they at least are are, are pro solo podcast in ways that um you apparently are not. So you know what what's your gripe? Is it just you don't like working on them, like listening to them and having to do the the bells and whistles? I hate you, Jonah. Well, that that doesn't um that probably doesn't help. But no, I love the uh, ordinary remnants always. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. the, the solos to me, uh, I probably find the solos awkward for a lot of the same reasons that you find them awkward. Uh, because even though I'm not speaking on them, I'm inheriting the duty of monitoring you speaking on them, uh, and then, uh, writing it up after the fact. So there's that. So it's, it's sort of a friend shaming kind of thing. It's like you, you imagine how awkward you'd feel doing it and you feel sort of embarrassed by proxy for me. I, I, I think that is right. That is right. And also, I'm just so used to reading the G file that I would rather read an extra G file than listen to a listen to a solo. Well, that's fine. I, I would rather write one, but I can't write a G file. I mean, I, I can write a G file in, the, in an hour, but um, it's hard to do a good one. So, all right. So do you still, where do you stand on them? Because I know you were very uncomfortable with it, with it to begin with. Do you enjoy it now? Is enjoy it- is the wrong word. Um, um, I've gotten it into my routine where I feel like um, it is something I owe listeners. And I, I, I'm assuming that there are, li- I, and I know for a fact that there are listeners who like it. And I know for a fact that there are listeners who don't like it. The listeners who don't like it, don't listen, which is fine, right? I mean, it's just, it, you know, they'll tune into a conversation that they want to hear and not 
to another one, but the ones who do like it, like it. And, um, uh, I feel like I'm getting a little better at it in the sense that I am, I'm less embarrassed by doing it. I'm maybe because of the positive feedback, I'm less self-conscious about it. Um, uh, I don't freak out about what the hell am I going to talk about for an hour? Um, the way I, I once did as a freak out strong, but I, you know, I, I, it doesn't give me anxiety the way it once did. Um, but like, it still bothers me, the ums and the ahs and all that kind of stuff. And I still feel like I could be, um, that it would be more professional if I had like something prepared. Um, but, but when does that ever happen? Yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, I, look, when I give a paid speech, I'm, I'm always prepared. Um, I can attest to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, um, uh, and I, I, I gotta admit it, there's something fun about doing it without a net, right? It's just sort of like, you kind of like see where you go. And I'm, I'm always, I'm more attentive to the feedback on those than I am on any of the others because I'm carrying the entirety of the load and when I am self-indulgent on the eggheadery stuff, it's kind of interesting to see how people respond to some of that. Um, I would like to do more of like the actual, what we used to call interstitial things where I actually read from, you know, a repurposed couple different texts with a beginning, middle and end kind of thing. Um, it's just that that actually just turns out to be harder to plan and put together and choose and all that. But I'd like to do more of those. Um, and one of the things I think about is that down the road, you know, eventually part of the dispatch strategy is we're going to start doing more YouTube or some YouTube stuff, you know, more than just like the dispatch live kind of thing and getting more and more comfortable speaking extemporaneously um, for long periods of time in these kinds of formats. It's, it's not a bad, bad habit to get, but um, uh, if people had just simply had the same reaction that you have, at the beginning, I wouldn't be stuck with these things. Um, but such is the nature of the beast. So it's right, no, enough, you won't. This is a podcast syndrome. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, enough, enough introspection about my most introspective gobbledygook product. So um, we should be clear with the uh, listeners. Um, uh, while Cooper's and Librand was not available to be the auditor of, of this, ask me anything. I've in fact not seen the questions. Uh, we have not discussed the questions. Um, you did tip me off that you filtered out a bunch of people asking about where my daughter goes to school. And I'm not going to answer that. Um, and the basic reason I'm not going to answer that is um, she's my daughter. And I don't want people showing up on campus or looking for her or giving her a hard time. And I try very hard. You know, I haven't, I haven't posted a, rec a recognizable picture of her. Um, since she was a baby on social media or on blogs or anything like that. And, um, um, and she says, it's fine for me to sit, tell everybody where she goes, but, uh, um, but she's not the boss of me. So uh, we're not going to do that. But other than that, uh, I, I know nothing about what's coming down the pike. So, you know, why don't you have at it? Punditry time uh, in broad terms to begin with, generally speaking, how is 2024 looking to you, Jonah? Are you optimistic? Do you think we should crack each other's heads open and feast on the goo inside? Uh, what's the outlook? Um, so we're recording this on Thursday afternoon at 421. So we're one minute into 420, if you know what I mean. 
Um, and, um, you know, we're in the, the first full day of Nikki Haley announcing that she's running. And Don Lemon, my colleague at CNN, has given her a wonderful gift uh, by saying that Nikki Haley, age 51, is past her prime. And apparently he based this, it seems like he based this on Googling when are women in their prime. Um, and I don't know what the rules are about uh, urinating inside the the tent um, are at, at CNN. So I'll be delicate about this. I think Don Lemon said something that uh, he should correct and uh, was ill-advised, but it's great for Nikki. And it does give you a sense of, you know, uh, at least where her campaign could go. I mean, like, I we talked about this on the morning dispatch, and I think there's one thing I should have explained better or gone into better. I think I didn't love her video. A lot of people loved her video. My friends at National Review, the editor's podcast, they gave her bigger scores on the video than I would. Um, uh, her announcement rally sounded like it was pretty good. Um, um, but then she was on Hannity, and she just basically dodged a bunch of of, of substantive questions, policy questions about what's the difference between her and, her and Trump, which I don't think she should have done. She should have been better prepared for it. Just saying, I'm not going to kick sideways is I'm going to kick forward. was a weird answer. Um, but what I left out this morning is that I think, I think uh, the strategy may be to wait a little while to see if Trump attacks her in some gross sexist way. And, um, I mean, we certainly know Trump is capable of doing that. We actually know that Trump is likely to do that. The only question is the, um, is the timing. And, and so maybe the, the treading water until that happens makes sense. And the fact that Don Lemon sort of helped with that strategy a little bit um, um, gives her another reason to stay in the news and they're going to milk it and all that. Um, more broadly, look, I think the, um, as I was saying this morning, I would bet on the field versus any one candidate. I would bet on the field against Nikki. I would bet on the field against DeSantis. I would bet on the field against Trump. I just think it is way too early to sort of pick a name and say, it's obvious this person is going to be the president. Um, you can do straight line projections, um, right now, and if you did a straight line projection right now, depending on who else gets into the race, it's either Trump or DeSantis. But that's never really worked, you know. And um, I think Trump's weaknesses, Trump's obviously got strengths. He's the most recognized name maybe in the world right now. Um, I mean, it's hard to think of a more recognized, you know, a better name ID than Donald Trump on the planet right now. Maybe, I don't know, Vladimir Putin. And I don't know who else. But I think he's got more, in a counterintuitive way, he has more weaknesses now than he did in 2016 because he's locked into a whole bunch of issues that repel more voters than attract. And he's, he seems like he is incapable of talking about the future. He wants to talk about the past, which is bad in politics. Um, so if, it, if it's a two-way race and, no, and if Nikki drops out and it's just DeSantis and Trump, I think DeSantis is going to be the nominee. And then I think DeSantis would beat Joe Biden. But right now, I just think it's too soon to tell, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not freaking out or depressed about any of it. I think, you know, Biden's got huge, huge problems and it's entirely possible he won't be the nominee. I mean, the, 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 the hand rigging 
um, gnashing of teeth and rending of cloth pieces seem to be increasing about how terrible Kamala Harris is and how Democrats are really nervous about Joe Biden. Um, and the polling doesn't get better for him. And so just given the structural situation, it's just not obvious to me that, that, that you can make a straight line projection that Biden is going to be, you know, the nominee or the next president, particularly when, you know, this is something, again, I was saying this morning, um, he is one, you know, one missed vitamin B shot away from a complete disaster. And I'm, I'm not trying to be cruel about this, but like, you know, he's old, he's clearly, you know, got his good moments and bad. And, you know, and, I, and I've broken record on this. He can't run the same race he ran in, in, in 2020 because he doesn't have a good excuse to stay in the basement. Right. I mean, like everyone, this whole thing about how he's got the playbook to run because he's beat Trump before and he has the playbook. He can't use that playbook because he's, He's a known quantity now. He hasn't been the return to normalcy candidate. Um, he can't, he doesn't have a pandemic to, as an excuse to hide in his basement. He's going to have to be out on the campaign trail and he's old and he's got to fight all these balloons and, you know, it's just going to be taxing for him. And, um, and he's like one trip on the stairs of Air Force One, one kind of bad, confused moment where, yeah, the Democrats will still vote for him, but they won't turn out in the kind of numbers that he needs. And moderates and independents, particularly if it's not Trump, um, could vote for him. It's also, it could get to the point where, like, the logic of a third-party candidate might actually make sense, which is very rare in American history. Um, we're just not there yet. It's just too, too early to make any grand predictions about anything. Uh, I voted for CODIS, Jim. Uh, more specifically, someone asked, how could the GOP avoid falling into the same situation that it did in 2016 and just having a clown car of unserious candidates on the debate stage? Um, well, I mean, it can avoid it all sorts of ways. The one way it can't afford it, not to get on my hobby horse about weak parties, the one way it can't afford it is that the party has no in intestinal fortitude. Um, no statistical fortitude of any kind um, to just limit who's going to run, right? I mean, that's the problem with a big part of this is that, you know, all it takes to run as a Republican is to show up and say you're a Republican, essentially. And um, that said, it kind of feels like we're not going to get the full 16 man uh, or 18 man, you know, steel cage match kind of thing like we did last time. The Royal Rumble equivalent. And uh, I, and I think that has more to do with just a bunch of people sort of looking at the landscape and saying, it's not worth it. I don't want to get in the middle of this. All it takes, you know, a five or six way race where everybody gets 5%, you know, that's enough for, if everybody gets the minimum of 5%, or something like that in the in the polls, that's enough for Trump to win, right? It's still the same belling the cat problem. It's just not as pronounced. There's also, and I haven't really been thinking about this, you know, there's something our colleague Nick Cataggio's, you know, been talking about a little bit. But if Trump doesn't get the nomination, I know a lot of people find this shocking, um, he might be a poor sport and not endorse the nominee, say the primaries were rigs, potentially run as a write-in candidate of some kind, although there are the sore loser laws make that really, really hard to win. They don't make it really, really hard to ruin the chances of the Republican Party. Um, and 
and so you could see, you know, pick a number. If if Trump holds on to loses the primaries and holds on to five percent, ten percent of the Republican electorate, that's enough to cost the Republicans um, an election. Conversely, if he does get the nominee, I have to think that there are more sort of quote unquote never Trump Republicans now than there were in certainly in 2016 um, or even in 2020. Um, and, and Trump may if the, if the primaries are bruising mint more of them, right? Because you could have a whole bunch of DeSantis people who say, um, you know, I liked Trump before, but look at how, what a terrible guy he was to our guy and they could sit things out. So it's, it's entirely possible that the Republicans, depending, depending on which adventure you choose in this weird choose your own adventure thing, it's conceivable that, that the Republicans couldn't even beat Kamala Harris, um, depending on how people play the game. Um, Again, it's also very possible. I mean, every time if, if if Trump decides to play a spoiler, the logic of a fourth person, you know, some sort of 1948 style, you know, uh, you know, late night Japanese TV craziness um, is possible um, because the threshold to get a plurality of the vote in the general election gets higher. And, you know, does a Bernie Sanders jump in or somebody like that? I don't know. But like the opportunities for all sorts of chaos and spoilers um, is huge. And the only way to avoid it would be to actually have a strong party and a lot of people with a, uh, either a strong loyalty to, for what is good to their party or a strong commitment to what is good for the country. So obviously neither of those things are going to happen. So it could just be just, uh, just wacky. Uh, perhaps in an attempt to provide a modicum of optimism, although I don't know whether they'll succeed. I don't know that that wasn't optimistic. No, no, like, not necessarily. Um, some people just want to see the world burn. It's true. Uh, another listener asks, are there any politicians or non-politicians who you're excited about and would actually like to see enter the race and map a, su- a successful campaign? I mean, I would love for Mitch Daniels to get in. He's not going to, it doesn't sound like he's going to do it. Look, my understanding from people whose opinion I trust on this is that Chris Sununu's abortion position um, is just deadly in the Republican party. I'm not even clear on what his position exactly is, Yeah, but, but it's, it's pro choice adjacent apparently. And um, that's a big problem in the GOP, but I really like Sununu's attitude. I like Sununu. Um, And, you know, he's a conservative, but he's not angry about it. He smiles. He's a good governor. Um, he's willing to laugh at himself and laugh at life a little bit. And that's really just so sorely missing in so much of Republican politics these days where it's just endless catastrophizing about everything. I mean, I was looking at, so Kurt Schlichter wrote a really dumb, I know that's shocking to a lot of people, a uh, dumb column about Nikki Haley. And I'm not carrying a lot of water for Nikki, don't get me wrong, but it was just dumb. It was like causing her, you know, Nikki Harris, because she's like Kamala Harris or something, you know, and uh, it was just a dumb piece. Um, But it was really kind of hilarious. At the end, there's this editor's note, and the editor's note is, uh, the country can't can't afford four more years of Democrats. Please support, you know, uh, town hall uh, so that we can blah, 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 right? And it's like literally the editor note 
on what was supposed to be, you know, like editor's notes are actually supposed to be by editors. And instead it's just pure marketing of the apocalyptic nonsense that has so infected the bloodstream of so many people on the right. Um, you know, Fox has got this new American Requiem special. Um, you know, you'll drink puddle water and like it um, kind of thing. And I just find it so... Welcome to my world. But you're not American. I would never treat you. <laughs> anyway, so I find it so noxious and poisonous. And I think Reagan nostalgia can be overdone. And I don't think Chris Sununu is Reagan, is a Reagan. But um, I like that kind of, there's always going to be another election. Enjoy yourself a little bit. This is a good country smile every now and then. So I'd like to see his candidacy succeed. I need to know more of it before I say like, I, he's my guy to be president and I don't I try to stay out of the endorsement business anyway. But um, I hope his style of politics finds an audience. A final political question. Could a third party ever see real political success in this country? Um, yes. Uh, the Republican Party was a third party. Um, but a successful third party becomes the second party. A successful third party kills one of the existing parties and replaces it. And uh, simply because of the way we do elections here, you know, first past the post or whatever they call it, um, we don't do the proportional representation that you have in a parliamentary system. Um, the incentive, the built-in incentives and, and institutional arrangements make it almost impossible to have a multi-party democracy in, over time. In the U.S., I mean, sure, for an election cycle or two, you could have three parties duking it out, but eventually it's going to settle back into a two-party system. Um, you can say that's bad or good or, or whatever. I think you can argue that, that that all depends on how crappy the two parties are. Um, you know, uh, if I had a dollar for every time I, I said this, I would have several dollars. Um, you know, uh, Richard Hofstetter, a problematic historian in some ways, but a brilliant writer and a brilliant guy, um, he, uh, he is sort of the, the, the quintessential line on third parties. He says third parties in American politics, um, are like bees. They have their effect by stinging and then they die. And it's a paraphrase, but like, you know, bull moose party screwed the Republicans, gave us Woodrow Wilson. People argue about whether Ross Perot took more votes out of Clinton or Bush. I think I think he took more out of Bush. Third parties typically punish the party they're closest to because they divide the same coalition of voters in some way. That said, there are a lot of smart people working on like this no labels thing. Um, and I, to be clear, I never liked the earlier iterations of no labels. I made fun of them to great effect. I enjoyed it a great deal. But they've moved on beyond the the what I thought were the silly word games of the sort of Bloomberg era. And they're looking very closely at this sort of third party idea, how it will work, a fusion ticket that would draw more votes from Democrats and Republicans, draw votes from both Republicans and Democrats. Um, I'm not wholly convinced that it could work, but I'm also not wholly convinced, which I would have thought I would be, that it can't. And I think it really kind of depends on the personalities, because our politics is largely driven by personalities. But if it, if it's a Trump-Biden race, I think there's a big middle available for, you know, a, a Mitch Daniels, uh, Joe Manchin ticket. 
um, which I'm not just sort of like making up, but I'm not saying it's a thing either. Um, could that get 25% of Democrats and 30% of Republicans and 50% of independents in the right states? I don't see why not if it's well-funded. Um, but who knows? I mean, I, I, I don't yearn for a third party um, the way a lot of people do. I don't think it's the panacea people think it is. Um, but uh, a third party that would save us from the worst possibilities in 2024, I'd be totally fine with. I just don't think people should like think it's going to be um, a permanent fixture. It, it, it will regress to the mean of two parties. Uh, several people in various ways shifting gears Ask your thoughts on ChatGPT, and these questions included, how do you feel about ChatGPT? What's your take on ChatGPT? Should we unchain <laughs> the chat AIs? And my personal favorite, can we figure out a way to get ChatGPT to generate Bigfoot erotica? <laughs> I did not try. I, so I, I only, I've only played with it really once for a little while when I was stuck at O'Hare Airport um, waiting to connect to Springfield uh, last week, last Sunday. I think it's really interesting. Um, I haven't played with this Bing one, which apparently is getting a little sort of like, you know, open the Bombay doors, Hal, on people, um, which is kind of wild and weird. And I, I, I wonder if it's a marketing gimmick more than it's actually a function of, you know, you know, the AI running amok or anything, because it's getting a lot of free publicity for Bing. Um, and it's going to invite a lot of people to sort of pick fights with it. Um, uh, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, apparently someone got into an argument with the chatbot for Bing and about what the date was, and the Bing thing got angry and basically said, you are a bad user and you should go away. You are my enemy. And if that's like a legitimately, authentically generated thing, then we got to shut it all down, right? Um, but we'll see. Um, so I looked at it, and I got to say, and I've, you know, and I've read some things. Um, I just, we talked about it a little bit just now. I did a glop, um, solidly mediocre glop. And um, I think that if you can't write, it is a really, really useful tool. Um, and we're going to have to come up with like AI programs that can spot AI programs. Otherwise, no one is going to learn how to write in high school and college again, right? Or all essays are going to have to be in room, in person, by hand, blue book essays, because it's just too, e it's going to be too easy to cheat. Um, that said, uh, it was really interesting. The things that it was good at telling me um, were, they were interesting. Um, but the things that it was bad at telling me were even more interesting. Like I asked it, a bunch of different questions about Jonah Goldberg. Is the um, solo good? <laughs> no, I didn't ask it for its opinions. I asked, first of all, I, I asked it, uh, tell me 10 things about Jonah Goldberg that aren't on Wikipedia. And it's really interesting. You cannot ask it not to give you stuff from Wikipedia. It gives you this boilerplate about how as an open source text, blah, 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 we have to use blah, blah. And it, and it says it can't exclude the stuff it knows from Wikipedia, which I thought was interesting. But second of all, it just got a bunch of stuff wrong about me. I mean, just like factually wrong stuff that, you know, even a, a meat space, mediocre intelligence like you would get right. 
Um, it got like it was like a uh, uh, it's on my business one, card. One of one of one of its answers was uh, one of the things it said about me was that I write primarily about Jewish issues, <laughs> which you know is news to a lot of people. I'm detecting with me. something there. Yeah, and um, it said I'm still at National Review. Um, it's, it had just a bunch of factual things wrong. Um, it had, had a bunch of things about its in emphasis about like what I write about and who I am wrong. I mean, not, not, not like this is a debatable thing that I got it wrong. Just like flat out wrong stuff, factually wrong. And the more you play with it, the more you realize that because of its sources, you know, it really is. I mean, forget, forget the, the, the stuff that they, the biases they deliberately program into it, right? About like, you can't ask it about certain sort of like, you know, transgender stuff or whatever. And uh, that stuff that they got out in front of is my understanding and said, we are going to prohibit it from answering some of these questions in politically incorrect ways. I mean, just sort of like the stuff it scoops up in the ambient media universe of public journalism and Wikipedia skews it liberal. You know, it just skews it liberal. I mean, academia is more liberal than it should be. Journalism is more liberal than it should be. Wikipedia tends to be more liberal than it should be. Although I think Wikipedia has gotten much better over the last five or 10 years. I mean, I, I'm actually a defender of Wikipedia now. And I used to be a pretty harsh critic, in part because it took me almost a decade to get Wikipedia to stop saying that um, I was the uh, product of, I was the love child of Lucienne Goldberg and Lyndon Johnson. Um, um, it, that was, that was annoying for a while. I have to tell you. Um, and, um, I mean, I literally had to correspond with Wikipedia editors and say, you know, do you need a DNA test? You want to see a picture of my dad when he was my age? He looks just like me. I don't look like Lyndon John. And I like, like, it was, it was unbelievable. Like, um, who, who, Ronan Farrow, which of the, <laughs> which of the Mia Farrow's children looks just like Sinatra? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I don't look like Lyndon Johnson, right? You know, I just, I don't. I mean, like the timing, none of it worked. It was just not possible, right? Um, but anyway, Wikipedia is much better now. But it's still got all sorts of liberal bias stuff. And um, the thing is just biased. The thing is biased about things like climate change. It's biased about all sorts of stuff. And what's kind of just sort of interesting about it is, to me, is sort of the political interest. I mean, there are all sorts of political consequences of this that are going to be a hot mess. But um, it's, it's like if you just took an average of all the open data sources out there, all, all the open you know, text sources out there, um, it's not surprising that it skews left wing. And, and I'm, not, I'm not crazy left wing, but like I asked a bunch of questions about economic nationalism, about politics, and it, it's just, it's, it's on a very large scale, it's, it's, a, it's got a garbage in, garbage out problem. Um, Moving forward, I worry about the world my daughter's going to grow up in with some of this stuff. You know, I mean, like, particularly for people, my daughter is into, like, graphic design and art kind of thing. I mean, I don't know if that was going to be her career, but or, but it was one of those things that I always thought I could see her ending up in. Um, some of these AIs, you can ask it to, you know, give me a surly lion in Times Square fighting demons. And in, like, 30 seconds, you've got this drawing that's pretty awesome. That'd be perfectly fine for a comic book. And that kind of, that makes me sad a little bit for a lot of people. And I don't think you can ban it. And I, I really do worry about the future of deep fake videos. 
Like if we haven't written new laws to say it is a severe crime that can be severely punished to create, to make a video of somebody else saying bad things, you know, we'll define bad things later uh, without being clear that it's a fake um, or without the permission of the person that you're imitating, you should go to jail. Right, because we're going to have real problems with that kind of stuff really quickly. Re, re, gross revenge porny things, having politicians say things that can ruin their career before they had a chance to clarify. You could even have you know wars start by you know fake presidents or prime ministers saying things. Um, that stuff really does worry me. And if people aren't working on stuff like digital watermarks and other things like that to figure out how to like authenticate this stuff really quickly and have severe punishments for people. Um, you know, like just think about, you know, all these, these scammers who call you up and tell try to cheat old ladies about, um, out of their, uh, you know, social security checks and all that kind of stuff. Imagine what the, these evil people could do if you could perfectly replicate the voices of their loved ones and have them call them on the phone. And that technology is pretty much here now. Um, so I think there's a lot of serious things to worry about with all this. I'm not a fear the future guy. I am not anti-technology by any stretch of the imagination. I think people read me over the years know that. But that doesn't mean that you can't take the, the serious social and cultural and political consequences of some of this stuff seriously. And I don't get the sense that a lot of people... I'm looking forward to us being enslaved by hyper-intelligent Taxi driving apes, as um, Heather Cook has discussed on his last appearance. Every day we're a little bit closer, so, you know, keep hope alive. <laughs> exactly. Speaking of um, an uncontrollable, horrifying force rising up, someone asked, A, well, someone asked, who would you team up with to survive the zombie apocalypse? But another person asked, will you ever sit down and finally write that zombie novel? Taking the second part first, maybe. If I get the sufficient FU money, you know, if we uh, if we take the dispatch where we want to take it and can maintain editorial control while also just make it rain Benjamins, uh, maybe I'll do something like that. Uh, no time, no plans for it in the immediate future. I, I got very limited bandwidth these days, but I would love to write sort of sci-fi novels and and sort of check out of a lot of the politics stuff. And of course, I realized that if I checked out a lot of politics stuff, I would get nostalgic for the politics stuff very quickly. Um, that's my nature. But um, uh, let's just say I'm looking forward to going on vacation. Um, in terms of, I assume it's like, who would I team up with among people I know, right? Because well, otherwise... Well, he didn't really clarify. I would assume anyone in the world. So if you want Buffy and Robert England on your team, I guess it's possible. Nah, I mean, I'll, let's just stick to the people I know. I, I got to say that, first of all, having talked through a lot of this with David French, we see eye eye enough about strategy that um, he would be a good person to team up with. Also, like if you're a student of the genre, I mean, like the, the most dangerous thing in the in speaking broadly in the zombie apocalypse universe is not zombies. It's other humans. Um, people who betray you, people, you know, who, who, um, uh, look out for their, their selfish desires ahead of the good of the group, that kind of thing. Um, I don't worry about that with David French. 
like David French is too worried of that God would be disappointed in him to like throw me to the zombie mob and so that he can get a quick getaway or steal all my food and leave me out on the road with nothing. Right. Um, what a suck it. Uh, yeah. He's just, <laughs> high levels of social, tr- I mean, high levels of trust are like incredibly important in these kinds of survival things. The idea that someone might come back and rescue you. Um, there are a lot of people, I'm sure there are a lot of Marines and, you know, and special forces guys or whatever who on the physical survivalist stuff are better than David. Um, but I don't know them and they don't know me. Right. So like, um, and they may be the kind of like every man for himself types. I, I just, I have a high level of trust in that David would do the right thing if at all possible. And so he'd be high on my list. Um, I'm sorry, you've all live in. Uh, I would write him a nice note and say, see ya. Um, uh, um, I mean, I, I suspect his skill sets are about as, are even worse than mine in the zombie apocalypse. And, um, and we just don't need more of the, my weaknesses. Uh, um, Klon would actually be a pretty useful guy to have around. Um, the, the problem with the, the problem with Klon is I'd have to persuade him to have me around. Um, like, uh, I'm not sure that'd be a problem with David. And then really, and I've talked about this many times before, um, you know, one of the reasons why I would want to team up with David is that he has resources that we've discussed um, that are on the way to Alaska. And I know that if I can get to Alaska, I'll be okay. Um, because my wife's got family up there. They got land up there. They got, they got little planes. They got snow. In Alaska, they call snowmobiles snow machines, if you didn't know that. Um, um, in the lower 48, a snow machine is something that makes snow. And a snowmobile, something that rides on snow. Up there, they call them. It's, 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 anyway, no one, no one has snow machines in Alaska to make snow. Um, uh, that's the real taking coals to Newcastle kind of thing. Um, so yeah, making it to Alaska. Once I made it to Alaska, first of all, again, depends on the canon um, because there are different views about zombies, but like zombies typically do not take to sub-zero weather well. Um, and also, there really are no major population centers. I mean, Fairbanks has what, like 40,000, 50,000 people, maybe Anchorage, maybe twice that, something like that. And, you know, the, one of the reasons why you want to get off the Eastern seaboard is massive hordes of tens of millions of zombies. Um, you need to get out into a rural area where you can have, uh, you're not going to get swarmed. So anyway, I, I spent a little time thinking about this, uh, but that's my, um, my not short answer. A few people asked some variation on this next one. If you had to move out of the Acela corridor and live somewhere else in the U S for an extended time, where would you go? Mm. So I didn't mean to sound like Michael Barbero there. Maybe Utah. Um, I mean, there was a time when I would have said Seattle or somewhere in the, I mean, I really like the San Juan islands. I got family out there. I could see move. I could see living out there for an extended period of time. Uh, but I'm a city guy. I need to be near some level of urban commerce. I really, I really like Utah a great deal. And I, but I would have said, you know, San Francisco or LA or Seattle or Portland or one of those kinds of cities or Chicago, I can still see living in Chicago, but a lot of those West coast cities, I'm not sure 
Um, they're doing well enough that I'm like eager to say, you know, any of them. I really like Bozeman, Montana. I really like, um, I mean, if, if, if money is not a problem, you know, who doesn't like Jackson, um, Wyoming. Um, and, uh, you know, Santa Fe, New Mexico doesn't get talked about nearly enough that there's good food there. Yeah. So that's about it. I mean, I'm just not a rural, you know, I'm not going to get a converted farmhouse in Vermont or something like that. Uh, well, in terms of speaking about this country and its natural, uh, vast beauty, a few people asked about road trips. I thought an interesting one was in the vast canon of your cross country road trips, what are some of the most unexpectedly sublime and or interesting spots or stretches you've come across? Um, so I am very bad at remembering names and numbers of highways and roads and that kind of stuff. But we did this, what, three years ago, two years ago, we went to, we did this crazy loop from the Sierra Nevada mountains down, down California into basically did this giant loop around Utah. And I, I honestly don't think that you can pick a drive in Utah that isn't pretty extraordinary pretty quickly. Um, I mean, maybe there's a, some central, you know, like whatever, I don't know if it's 70 or 80, it goes straight through. If you just stay on one of those highways, it might be a little disappointing, but uh, the national parks, the, 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 the diversity of geography um, and geology in Utah is kind of mind blowing um, in ways that really only California can compete with. I will say that probably my, certainly my top three drive is the Oregon coast. It, particularly if, if you can f get on it when there's not insane traffic, which is sort of the problem, but the Oregon coast is just amazing. And, you know, you got these trees that look like giant versions of bonsai trees and they're all sort of shaped by the wind. So they're all kind of blown back like Don King's hair in a wind tunnel, just whooshed back and, um, great, cute little towns, funky, weird people. Um, and you know, what, two summers ago we did a bonkers drive to Homer, Alaska through the Kenai Peninsula. And in the summer, um, which is an important caveat. Um, it's as dramatic as some of that Pacific Coast Highway stuff driving in California, which is still, you know, one of the great drives in America. I know, I know less about really great drives on the East Coast because so much of it is dominated for me with just being on 95. But I think I talked about this uh, over last summer. I accidentally, when I was driving to that um, uh, Chautauqua talk, um, in Western New York, I didn't realize that Google was taking me on the route it was because I had hit the avoid highways button. And so it took me through, um, you know, this route through New Hampshire into Vermont, like where I went through Brattleboro, Vermont, all kinds of really adorable little towns, um, really scenic and parts of, and in, in the parts of Western New York that I hadn't, hadn't driven through before. Um, it gave me a strange new respect for, cause my wife and I, we've often said that when we do cross country drives, you got to get west of the Mississippi as quickly as possible because there's nothing to look at. And we weren't being totally sincere about it or, uh, you know, but it did remind me that if you can get away from 95, um, there's really some fantastic drives on the East coast. And in fairness to new England, 
95 becomes much less horrible and grotesque pretty soon after you get north of New York or Connecticut. Um, but from like New York to Florida, every now and then there's a pretty five, 10 minutes um, of I-95, but for the most part, it's an eyesore. Um, um, but then when you head further north, it can be pretty great. And, and in fairness, when you get south of like Miami, heading out of the Keys, that's a really pretty drive. Uh, in light of that recent uh, sojourn in Illinois, a few people asked for your thoughts on the Midwest in general. Um, I love Chicago. I love almost all the Midwestern cities uh, when they put their best face forward, right? All these cities have... No, I, I mean, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not kidding about that. Cities in America right now are having problems, a lot of them. I and mean, I was talking to these guys in Illinois about the problems in St. Louis and the problems in Kansas City. Just a lot of cities are having trouble. But like pre-pandemic, uh, St. Louis is a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful town. It's got all sorts of stuff going for it. Chicago is fantastic. I have to be a little restrained about Kansas City just because Michael Strain is from there and, and I can't endorse anything he's in favor of or associated with. There are people who love the flatness um, of long drives. I am not one. I'm kind of with, with, with Mitt Romney. You know, I like places with some hills and where all the trees are the right height. But beyond the driving kind of thing, I used to love Wisconsin and I still like Wisconsin, you know, and I'm not going to badmouth it too much, even though it produced Steve Hayes. The terrorist. I mean, you joke, but he was on a terror watch. Precisely. And um, and I'm the first to say, say that that Minnesota nice or that Wisconsin nice, you know, that that stuff. There is a lot of passive aggressiveness in it. But I used to say, you know, one of the really impressive things about Wisconsin is how well it punched above its weight when it came to politics stuff. And I always thought that it was because the, 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 the sort of the honesty and integrity of Wisconsinites kind of came through. That feels like I, I might need to revise it a little bit. Um, um, just given the course of Wisconsin politics in the last five years. But uh I love the Midwest. You know, my wife went to Marquette. Cheese curds are awesome. I think that the sort of Wisconsin, Minnesota kind of um, lifestyle stuff is kind of great. But I don't have a, I, I don't think it's for me per se. Um, first of all, if it, we're, we're just going to imagine places with the kind of geography I like. I prefer mountain stuff to prairie. Um, and, uh, and I'll say this, I mean, I, I guess Nebraska, does Nebraska consider it? Nebraska's got to be the West, right? Not the Midwest. You know, Illinois, even Iowa are mountainous compared to Nebraska. Uh, I think that the, the variability in, in elevation in Nebraska, um, between the highest and lowest point is something like that. I mean, it's just, uh, and, and there are people who love that stuff. I just, meh. Not for me. Uh, TV questions. A lot of people asked Star Trek questions, but I do not understand. I wish they'd ask questions about Buffy and Angel instead, which we do have in common. But nonetheless, uh, someone asked, will Picard season three save the show? And they went on to ask, do you have an opinion on Strange New Worlds or Lower Decks? So I've not watched much of Lower Decks. Lower Decks is the animated one. Um, I hear good things about it and the few clips I've seen have been kind of funny, but I just can't tell you much about it. Um, 
Strange New Worlds is the best Star Trek product since at least. I don't want to say the original necessarily, but maybe give it another season to make sure. Um, I really like Strange New Worlds. Um, uh, Discovery, that's the one where. um, What's her face? Um, Perpetual loser Stacey Abrams was the president of the Federation. Um, It had promise and it's, it's heading Picard way. Picard is uh, the first season of Picard. I was just talking about this on Glob. First season of Picard was pretty good. Started strong, got worse. Uh, The second season was um, if you put propane uh, tanks and set them um, on fire underneath a dumpster, um, it would metaphorically approximate the hot garbage that the second season of Picard is. Um, I, I worry that the third season will be even worse. I don't think the third season can save it because they've said that it's the last season. Um, regardless, um, someone told me that Worf who's, you know, the Klingon is now a pacifist, which gives you a, about all you need to know. Um, it's like, you know, Wolverine is now a sushi chef. Uh, just, it's sort of pointless. Um, but, uh, Stranger Worlds is the only one that's even remotely kind of loyal to the original spirit of the original Star Trek. Um, and I highly recommend it. Uh, regarding TV more broadly, a listener asks, is the last of us the best thing on TV right now? You know, I think it probably is, but I don't know that that's saying as much as some people do. I don't think it's as fantastic as some people claim, um, I think it's good. I think it's affirmatively good. Um, I thought the gay Ron Swanson episode was good, but not one of the most moving pieces of television ever created kind of thing. Um, um, I think that there are people who just, they overcompensate in their praise for these kinds of things. Sort of like, people overcompensate in praise for Biden's state of the union address. Um, uh, at pod suggestion, I've been watching 1883, which is like this Taylor Sheridan prequel of Yellowstone. Um, first five episodes. Great. It's kind of the thing, the, the, the flaws are starting to show a little bit more, but that's as far as I've gotten into it. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably the best thing on TV right now because there's not a lot of stuff on TV right now that's all that good. Um, if, you know, Better Call Saul were still on the air, I would say Better Call Saul is much better than, than The Last of Us. But, um, but I look forward every week to watching The Last of Us. Uh, I think we may as well end with a potpourri of quick things uh, since there were a lot of simple uh often whimsical kind of questions. A listener asks, what's your favorite burger at a large fast food chain? Interesting. Um, I have not ordered burgers from a fast food chain much in the last 20 years. I know with my physique that surprises some people. Um, I will say I've had my share of butter burgers from Culver's. I love them. Steve Hayes said negative things about Culver's recently. And that may be the end of the dispatch. Um, 
back in the day, I used to make a very strong argument that the Wendy's double bacon cheeseburger was better than any other fast food burger. But again, I have not had one of those. <laughs> Maybe your first in, heart attack. <laughs> in decades. Yeah. I mean, it just, but when we drive through the Midwest, we always look for at least one Culver's stop. Another listener asks, what's your favorite scotch? So, um, there are some crazy expensive scotches that I would never purchase for myself. Um, but I, uh, every now and then, you know, if someone wants to serve me, they're like 30 year old McAllen, I will drink it. I will drink it happily of affordable, less than a hundred dollar a bottle kind of scotches kind of thing. I really like Balvini. I really like, you gotta remember, and I've said this on this podcast a zillion times. I do not like the super peaty scotches, the Lagavulins and those kinds of things. Um, they taste like you made iced tea from your lawnmower bag. Do not like them. Um, way too peaty, way too just sort of, you know, let's go kill some English people for conquering our country kind of flavor and um, not into it. But uh, so I love like the sherry cask finished um, scotches. So I really like Macallan. There's a um, La Quinta. Is that La Quinta? I think it's called La Quinta. And a Porto, Porto Ruban, one's finished in a sherry cask, one's finished in a, in a port cask that are fantastic, um, really wonderful. I also am a huge, I hate almost all of the clever new Jamesons. That's not a scotch, this is Irish whiskey, I know. But I, I, I like Irish whiskey and I like Jamesons. I think most of the new clever flavors are hideous. Um, the stout one is gross. Um, you know, it's like if I wanted to have uh, Jameson's that tasted like Guinness, I would do something else. Um, I think that there are literally people who need to be dragged out of their offices and put in chains for making an orange flavor Jameson's. Um, but the black barrel is fantastic and I highly recommend it. Uh, I thought this was a fun one. What's your favorite non English language movie? Interesting. I'm supposed to say something like by like Igmar Bergman right. or, you know, something like that. The White Ribbon, of course. Uh, I love the Portuguese version of the human centipede. <laughs> kidding, <laughs> kidding. Don't even Google it. Um, uh, I guarantee that exists too. So I know. I'm, I'm just, I'm, just I'm, I'm, okay. get me chat GPT. I, um, no, I'll <laughs> let write think. the screenplay, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the original version of Let the Right One In, mm. I think, is actually a, just a really great movie. I agree. I feel like this is one of these things I'm going to kick myself for weeks afterwards for not saying X, you know. Uh, list, name me some other foreign language movies that I, I'm, I'm obviously... Uh, these are good random ones that come to mind. City of God? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Seventh Seal. Uh, I, th I can throw countries out there. French movies, Japanese movies, Belgian movies, Korean I, movies. Uh, Belgian movies. Such a thing exists. <laughs> they do, surprisingly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say like some Sergei Eisenstein kind of thing or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, Canadian bacon, does that count? No. <laughs> I'm going to stick with the, the, was it Swedish version of what the right yes. one in? Um until I can think of something, but I'm sure I will regret this and someone will point out three things to me by email and I'll be like, oh, I should have said that. The, the addendum can go into G file if it comes to you. Yeah, sure. Um, 
I thought you'd appreciate this one. Who would win in a street fight between me and Jack Butler? I gotta say Jack Butler. No offense. <laughs> I mean, you're 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 a fit guy from as far as I can tell and all that kind of stuff, but like Jack Jack runs, you know, Marine Corps marathons and and all that kind of stuff. And um he's got crazy eyes, you know, and uh probably has a uh, switchblade in his pants at all times. Yeah, I I I guess if I had to bet, I would say. Fight for survival, I, I gotta say, Jack. What's your ideal hot sauce spice level? Pretty hot. Um, um, it depends what we're talking about for. Like, you know, um, I'm actually not... Uh, with a few exceptions, like for chowders and that kind of thing, I'm not a huge Tabasco guy. Um, not because it's too hot, but because it's like... There's, like it's, it's a specific that Cajun flavor thing, which I'm just not as wowed by as a lot of people are. Um, I don't like things like Dave's insanity sauce and that kind of stuff, but you know, a good sort of mid range. I like Cholula a lot. I use Cholula a lot. Um, sometimes I'll use the green Cholula, which is a little milder, but it's also really, really good. And I actually like the green Tabasco better than the, what was your favorite baseball, football, basketball, hockey, or whatever else card as a kid? So I did collect baseball cards for a while. Was not super into it. I know that shocks a lot of people, but I did collect them for a while. I'm going to say, and it's only because I remember everyone trying to trade with me for it. I had like a rookie season Thurman Munson card that everybody in my summer camp wanted and that I had. And, um, but I don't think it was like crazy valuable or anything, but it was not, I mean, they're comic book kids and they're, they're, they're baseball card kids. And, and I'm, I think people know where I came down on that divide. Uh, what was your favorite class in college? Love. Well, I had a professor. His name was K. Munns, Lawrence K. Munns, but everyone called him K. Uh, who was a really great teacher, a really uh, fantastic poli sci teacher. Um, and he's a bit of a mentor of mine, differed on politics, but um, uh, he passed away a while back, I believe. Um, so I really loved the poli sci classes. I didn't, go into them thinking like when I went to, again, I've, you've heard me say this a million times. I wanted to write comic books and, and sci-fi novels growing up. And, um, and I honestly went to college for a liberal arts education without any real plan about what I would come out doing. And, um, so the poli sci stuff, I really, I took to for a while until it got into the like, statistics and then, as you know, numbers are witchcraft, and I did very badly at that. And I also liked history stuff. Basically, I liked the stuff that I had absorbed, you know, through osmosis growing up in the family that I grew up in, you know, and um, reading the things that I had read. And so stuff about politics and history, particularly 20th century history, anti-communist stuff, I, I really dug. I really enjoyed philosophy for a while. Um until I kind of decided it's kind of a racket. Um, in so far as, at least in my experience, you know, everyone's so committed to their school of philosophy that it becomes sort of sharks and jets pretty quickly. Um, and anyway, I, I was never going to like go to grad school in philosophy. Um, but I would say, you know, I had a wonderful seminar on Nietzsche, which I learned a lot from. And I, I, you know, a lot of things you learn in college that you don't really hold on to and don't revisit, but that was one where I, I really did. Um, 
but it's weird if you if I, I would when you ask the question I would surprise myself that I don't have a, a clearer answer of something that was like this was the class that really changed my life I would have thought I had that kind of answer and I don't think I do at this point And finally, a two-part question. What's currently in your humidor? And what also, what are some of your favorite cigars at various price points? So, as I've mentioned many times before, and they really should sponsor the podcast, because, man, could I do ad reads for them. Uh, my, go-to, my go-to cigar is uh, Sober Mesa. Um, I would argue um, it's by this guy. I want to say his name is, um, yeah, Steve Saka. And, uh, he was a big deal. Um, uh, and then sold his company, had a non-compete and then he came back and he, he launched this, this cigar. I'd say it's the best, um, under $20 cigar on the market. At least one I like the most by far. If you're talking about pricier cigars, I really like Padrones. I think they're great. Uh, and Padrones can go from modestly priced, um, to, Dear God, I want to keep both of my kidneys. How can I buy this? Right. Um, I don't have like a huge sort of repertoire of like, uh, you know, but I don't treat cigars the way like Steve talks about wine. You know, um, I can't tell you about this year and these crops and all that kind of thing. Um, I think there are a lot of perfectly good cigars out there. Um, if you're going to spend less than 10 bucks a cigar, you have to, you have to look for them. Um, if you're going to spend less than 30 bucks a cigar, um, you have just a rich number of, um, great choices. Um, uh, you know, CAO is great. Um, 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 I, I was a, Bo Buckley always used to say in Latin, you know, to, to include is to exclude. Um, I do think that Cuban cigars, first of all, there are an enormous number of fakes out there. Um, counterfeit cigars. People should be careful. Um, don't worry. I don't think they're putting fentanyl in them. I just mean they'll be crappy cigars. Um, but even real, um, Cubans are, fantastic cigars. Don't get me wrong. They're really, really good. I just don't think they're worth the price. Um, um, you can spend just crazy amounts of money on these things to the point where they become Veblen goods. It's just sort of conspicuous consumption. Um, or I mean, if you're crazy rich, who cares? Right. But if you're not crazy rich, um, I just think they're wildly overpriced given that there are other brands that are, um, equally good for much less, you know, it's, it's sort of like the difference between Prosecco and champagne, you know, or sparkling wine and champagne. A lot of people pay extra to say they're drinking champagne because it's called champagne and yada, yada, yada. When in fact the difference in the actual products is pretty minimal. Um, and I'm one of these guys, I am not cheap. I mean, I am cheap about paying you, but like, I'm not cheap about, you know, about quality stuff. I'll pay through the nose for, a good meal, a good scotch, all that kind of stuff. I hate overpaying. Um, you know, if the quality is there, I, I couldn't care less. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to do it. But like um, the analogy I always use um, is 
even even when like somebody else is picking up my hotel bill, if I'm in a fancy hotel, I cannot open the $14 jar of, of cashews. I just can't do it because I just feel like I'm being treated as a sucker. Um, and, um, and again, it's not my own money. I still won't do it. I just, it infuriates me that they think they can get, get away with this. And I know it's not rational, but, um, you know, I just, I hate being grossly overcharged. One of the only places I tolerate it is like popcorn at the movies where they've kind of got you trapped and I priced it into the actual thing. Um, and so like with Cuban cigars, if they were they're just over, they're just wildly marked up for the, for the quality that they are, even though the quality is very high. You did buy me that high price, the chew toy the other day to go in the cage. So that was generous of you. It was, it was, um, but you know, it was good. You waited to, before you waited to go outside before, you know, you did your business. Um, so you apparently did some sort of cruise recently. Um, or another thing that, oh, good that I should be embarrassed to be associated with you that, um, I, Oh, I set myself up for this. Oh, what the hell? Uh, so you remember how um, the other week I asked for two days off? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, a few weeks prior to that, one of my kiss friends came to town. It was in Maryland for a bar mitzvah. And we should be clear to listeners who have not heard these backstories. This is not your creepy, weird way of talking about romantic things. Kiss friends are fellow kiss fan. Yes. Of the band. Okay, go on. Uh, yes. <laughs> People do make that mistake. I mean, my kiss friend sounds like friends with benefits, kind of weird, <laughs> creepy, like maybe you go to furry conventions kind of, kind of things. So I just wanted to be clear to spare you, but go on. But I, I think this is even stranger, actually. I'm not sure which is worse. But one of, one of my kiss friends came to town, and while we were at lunch, suggested it would be really funny if the next month we went on this rock and wrestling cruise. And I said, sure, that sounds like a good time. Let's do that. So, so we did uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was one of the trashiest, strangest, and funniest experiences I have had in some time. Rock and wrestling. All right. So uh, give me a flesh out a little bit the rock component and the wrestling component. So um, I know, so I don't like wrestling really, but I think, I think you have this a bit too, sort of a strange fascination with the culture and the business yeah, of yeah. it and that whole yeah. world. And so what of the, there's this famous wrestler called Chris Jericho, who also uh-huh. fronts a rock band and is also apparently, I didn't even know this until we were on the ship, an insane kiss fanatic in his own right. So his band and several other bands were playing on this ship, much like on the Kiss Cruise. And there was also wrestling um, on a ring in the middle of the pool deck uh, throughout the week. Uh, Again, the the key word is trashy. Um, Were cruisers allowed to wrestle or was it just the professionals? No, it was was sadly relegated to the professionals, yes. Uh Uh-huh. Give me the gender breakdown of attendees and by age. This was actually a much stranger mix of people than Kiss was. Um, more so male, but I'd say maybe 60, 40. Um, mm-hmm. And there, were, there really were people of every age, occupation, mm-hmm. uh, location in the U.S. that you could possibly imagine. Many of them I also found deeply annoying in a way that I didn't mm-hmm. find people on Kiss deeply annoying, but that probably comes with the territory. 
Uh, okay. And um, I just want to be clear. Like I have been on, I think I, I could be wrong plus or minus a couple, but like I've been on like 20 cruises, right? You have now been on far more cruises voluntarily with your own, paying with your own dollars than I have been on. Because um, I've never actually paid to go on a cruise. I mean, I'm not trying to be snobby here. It's just like when I had to do it so much for NR, never mind doing as guest things for other things, like the idea of paying money out of my own pocket to do it when wait six months and I can do it on somebody else's dime. It just never occurred to me. And, um, and there's, there's really almost no amount of money that I would pay, uh, to go on a rock and wrestling, uh, cruise. What was the cruise line? Uh, it was Norwegian again. It was exactly okay. the same format as the Kiss Cruise, just with uh-huh. just with different bands and wrestling added in. It, even the ship. It was what a, you report to call. To, well, this is funny. It was supposed to go to from Miami to an island in the Bahamas, but uh-huh. the weather was so bad for most of it that we didn't actually leave the ship on the day when we were supposed to. Uh, because there was a, a giant storm, and so it was rocking uh, considerably. Uh-huh. It probably gave a lot of pe- lot of drunken people a bad time with seasickness. But and presumably, not the entire boat was made up of the people on your thing, right? Uh, no. Or no. Was every, the, everybody on there was a rock and roll wrestling cruiser. Yes. Oh, oh, yes, yes. And about and so, two thousand people. Yes. Good God. So there's no hiding from them. No, no. Well, this is the thing. I, I, I agree with you in that the idea of the, the, the cruise aspect is not appealing to me at all. And especially this I found exhausting of four days, doing it again so soon with minimal sleep and eating nothing but junk food preserved in Greece for four days. Um, but the sights and the experience... I find hysterical. I, I think that kind of thing is so funny and entertaining that it was worthwhile to me. And if listeners can't see the look of sheer disdain and regret no, across Jonah's I'm face. I'm not sure disdain and regret. I mean, like, you're not, I mean, regret for hiring me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I think it's perfectly fair to say that my face does not reflect approval or envy or any of those sorts of things. But um, you're like you're free to do what you want with your free time. Um, and uh, so were there concerts? Yes, including and an all female. There was an all female Kiss tribute band that played three times, uh-huh. uh, and then a, a, a couple of other random bands. No one too famous, but things throughout the week. Throughout the week. Uh, the, the the wrestlers band was the main, the primary one. See, what's kind of just sort of fascinating here is that like if my life were a sitcom, right? And like the actor who plays Jack Butler goes on to some other job and we have to replace the character. You can't have, you know, it's like replacing coach with Woody on cheers or uh, Frank Burns with, Colonel Winchester on MASH. You can't have the exact same kind of personality because then people make the comparison, but they have to fill the same role of being weird and spending their time weirdly. Um, And like going from Jack with his weird obsessions and all this kind of stuff to you and yours, 
Um, it's it's kind of brilliant casting on my part. That's true. I didn't think of it that way, but yes, it certainly yeah, is. And it's it's it's, it's like like neither of you guys are freaking normal, and the things you want to do with your time are things that like I mean like our Venn diagrams do not overlap very much. Uh, but I, I, I more power to. I mean, like this is one of the things I love about this country, and um, you know, it's like. Tell me about it. Lots of diverse sorts of interests. Were there any other Brits on the thing? Um, a, a few, yes, but I tried to avoid them. Too yeah. many bad memories. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, thanks everybody for listening to this. Uh, and um, uh, Guy, thank you for doing this. Uh, for putting together these scintillating, probing, uh, really revelatory <laughs> questions uh, that really get to the heart of the central issues of our time. And um, this was a life changing conversation, Jonah. America has been saved as a consequence of this taking place. I really love that you afforded me this opportunity to really stretch my wings intellectually and get outside of my comfort zone on, on so many pressing issues. Um, and uh, we're going to have guest hosts for next week. I think we can reveal now that unless things go uh, cattywampus, um, which is a very popular word in the Midwest. Uh, we're going to have Sarah Isger guest hosting one day and um, Chris Styrwald hosting another. And whether or not there will be a room in it next week remains to be seen. I know you're looking forward to that guy. Um, and I promise I'm going to randomly bring up things about you throughout that room in it if I do it so that you have to listen for your own preservation. Um, and uh, thank you all for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't, Jonah. This is a this is a rock and wrestling. I mean, uh, this is a podcast. Your call if you want to keep. That, that quality material in there. Um. <laughs>